Father, we thank you for this day which you have made, which you have created. Father, we thank you for your grace in bringing us together this morning, Lord. Lord, and we're reminded of the freedom that we have to proclaim and to hear your word. Lord, I pray that none of us here would take that for granted, that none of us here would have cold hearts or hard hearts, Lord. But I pray that in this time, you would minister your grace and your mercy to us. Lord, for we do stand in desperate need of you. And we know that we have an all-sufficient Savior in your Son, who you have freely given. So I pray now, Father, that you would exalt him in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the text which I'm going to be bringing before you today is found in Hebrews chapter 4, from verse 14 down. And I will read it. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Um, a lot's been going on in my, my own personal life with my family. My family is kind of populating from the inside. Recently, my cousins had two, two young children at the same time. And as I was looking at the, the young children and thinking over them, I was just thinking over the, the, the miracle of new life, the miracle of birth. But it got me thinking the miracle of the new birth and how wonderful a thing it is to see a newborn Christian. The life, the joy the exuberance, the zeal. I think there's nothing more beautiful in the earth than to see someone who has just been touched by the love and the goodness of God. Their face, as it were, shines like Moses when he came down from the mountain. But as we know, any of us who have walked the Christian path for a while, that after a while we begin to encounter trials. We begin to encounter pilgrim's progress. We, we enter, we come out of Egypt like the Israelites, singing praises and shouting for joy, but then we discover we have to go through a wilderness to get to the promised land. We discover fiery serpents and different testi testings and trials, and before we know it, we can find ourselves overwhelmed and discouraged. We can find ourselves discouraged by the discovery of our weakness. We start out so strong, don't we? I remember when I became a Christian, I thought I was done with sin for the rest of my life. I thought that was it. I'm going to be in, I'm already in heaven. I'm, I'm there. But as time goes on, you find that there is much against you. And that to walk the path, the narrow way, is a hard way, even as Christ said. You discover that you're weak in your will, you're weak in your desire, you're weak in your effort. You discover your weakness to obey and to please the God who has so wonderfully saved you. 
And in this way, the devil gets ground back in, his li- in our lives, doesn't, doesn't he? You know, as we discover more our own weakness, the devil begins to whisper discouragement. He begins to whisper to us that we might as well give up. I'm sure some of you have known that. I know I'm not just speaking to myself when I say that. But any true Christian who has trodden the path knows exactly what I'm speaking about. And if you don't, have you trodden that path? But this text meets us so wonderfully. And I want to speak to those who are aware of their own weakness and even now have come to this place of worship under their sense of their own weakness and under their sense of their need for Christ and his help. This inspired text speaks to us right into that condition. As when it was originally penned, it was originally written by an unknown writer, an unknown apostle to the Hebrews. And we know that these Christians were going under many different trials, many different temptations, many different discouragements. Essentially, the book of Hebrews is a book that says, persevere, persevere, keep going, keep going. Do not give up. Do not stop. Christ is greater. The reward is greater. Do not turn aside. Essentially, Hebrews is there to encourage us by warning and encouraging. And so, in times of our weakness and discouragement, there's no better book than I turn to the book of of Hebrews. And there we find a sweet relief in the word of God. So from this text, I would like to bring three things to our mind, three truths. First, I just want to quickly ask the question, what is our weaknesses, as we see that in verse 15? And then I would like to say that from this text, we see that there is a confession for the weak. There is sympathy for the weak, and there is confidence for the weak. And then lastly, I would like to try to apply that to us and and, and encourage us to imitate that. And so just briefly, the scripture speaks about two types of weaknesses. There's a natural weakness that, we, that, that every man and every woman has, Christian or non-Christian. God made us finite. We're not self-sustained. We're dependent. And so by, by what we are in our own nature, we are weak. We are limited. We're not infinite. And so there's a weakness that we possess that is, is not inherently sinful. It's not sinful. This is the weakness that Paul spoke about when he says, I boast in my weakness. He was not talking about a sinful weakness. He was talking about the weakness that exposes his inability, the weakness of persecutions, of hardships, of calamity. Those things the Christian can boast in because they cause us to say his grace is sufficient for power is perfected in weakness. But yet there's another weakness that only really the Christian knows. And this is spiritual weakness. This is the weakness that derives from indwelling sin. Only the man or woman who has been regenerated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit can know a weakness of his own spiritual, his own spiritual man, a weakness that derives from him. He, only he can really take the words of Romans 7 and say, the good that I do want to do, I do not do, and I do the evil that I do not want to do. Only a true Christian can know that experience the weakness that derives from indwelling sin. And I think this text where it says our high priest sympathizes with our weakness, I think it is addressing that. 
And it is that weakness that so discourages and groans the Christian. Even as Paul says there at the end of, at the end of Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who can set me free from the body of this death? It is this weakness of ours that, mm, let me say it, it is in this weakness that God has appointed our high priest. As the text says, since then we have a great high priest. God has appointed his high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the appointed help of the weak one. He has been given to aid us in our weakness. Our great high priest. Know that. Not only high priest, but great. The eternal son of God in flesh, taking on the likeness of sinful flesh to mediate between a holy God and a sinful man, to grab two heads and bring them together, to reconcile and fill up the void that existed because of, because of our sin. That is the high priest. That is the one who God has appointed. And he is great. He is great because he is the eternal son of God, but also because he is sinless man. And he is the helper of the weak. He is the lifter of the lowly. He is the one who relieves the heavy yoke. He is the one who has offered a perfect sacrifice of himself once and for all for sin and now has passed through the heavens before God for us. It is him who has said, a bruised reed I will not break, a smoldering wick I will not put out. He says he can sustain the weary with a word. Our great high priest. He's the one who is to aid us and how wonderful it is how great a help that we have and I want you to see this now as we go into the text I want you to see the infinite tenderness and compassion of Christ for us and for you to be strengthened by it and encouraged by it and so to the first point a confession for the weak now the devil has many strategies in the life of, 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 of a Christian the devil has many strategies to get you down and to extinguish your fire but one of them is that he seeks to silence you. Because the devil knows that there is a power in our confession. It says in Revelation that they overcame him, the devil, by the word of their testimony. And so the devil will seek to press and attack you and buffet you and hurl his fiery darts at you so that you will be silent in your confession for Christ. The scripture also speaks of our confession as a manifestation that we possess salvation in Romans 10. We believe with the heart, we confess with the mouth, and we are saved. And it's true that when Christ fills the heart, you can only but confess him. When the love of Christ fills your soul, all you can do is speak of Christ. He is always on your lips. I remember when I first came to Christ, Christ was, that's all, that's all, he was the only one I wanted to speak about. I would talk about him to the leaves or the trees or whatever moved, whatever breathed would hear the gospel, would hear about Jesus. Even though I couldn't explain it well, I just said that Jesus is alive and he has saved me. Do you remember that experience? You just wanted to speak about him. You looked for the opportunity. You was in the workplace and you was scanning, as it were. How can I speak about my saviour? Mm. But then what happens? <laughs> Trials. The narrow way, the hard way, temptations settle in and the discovery of our own weakness makes us feel no longer able or fit 
to confess his name like we once did. We no longer look for the opportunity, but we become silent. We see an opportunity to confess Christ, but we would rather not make the situation awkward. The devil silenced us by the discovery of our own weakness. It discourages us to confess. But we cannot rest at that conclusion. For the scripture says that since we have a high priest, let us hold fast our confession. Jesus Christ is the confession of those who are weak. Your weakness should not make you <laughs> relinquish your confession, but strengthen it. For it is only the weak who can truly confess Christ. He did not come to be the confession of those who are strong, those who are able, but those who are unable, those who are weak. And he loves to be on the mouth and the lips of those who own and know their weakness. For those are the only ones who can really appreciate his saving work and who he is. And so to you who are tempted, to you who are even now thinking, yes, I do not confess Christ as I once did. I once was radiant. I once spoke of his name to everything that lived and moved, I once desired and yearned to share Christ. If you are being tempted to lose your confession, God says today, hold fast that confession. Continue to confess him. And don't let your weakness drive you away, but let it drive you to him. Drive you to confess more the name of Jesus, the savior of the weak. The strong tower of the weak, the strength of the weak one. God says, hold fast your confession. For dear saint, you have a high priest. High priest, Jesus beloved of the Father, the eternal son who became flesh and blood so that he may, buy, he may be the lamb of God, a spotless and perfect offering for sin. And see, see, he has passed through the heavens and now stands with your name on his breastplate. He stands in the very presence of God to now represent you, to intercede for you. He is your advocate and he stands there before the Father on your behalf. Does this not encourage you to hold your confession fast? To continue to proclaim Jesus is my Lord and my Savior. Come what may, I will speak, I will shout his praise. The knowledge of who Christ is makes you want to speak more and more of him. There was um, a story in um, France when it was occupied by the Germans during the World War II. Um, and there was a, 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 a group called the French Resistance who basically resisted the occupation. And when times would get tough, when uh, the Nazis would round up their members and execute them and, 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 and things were getting difficult and, and they were discovering their own inability to, to save their own people, they heard that the Brits and the Americans would, would come, D-Day would come. They heard that one day relief would come. And so in their times of difficulty, they would confess that to one another. They would say, the English are coming, keep, keep fighting. The Brits are coming, keep fighting. And so in the same way, they publicly declared their hope to carry on. We need to do that. We need to publicly continue to declare our hope because it strengthens us. 
The sword of the Spirit disarms the enemy and it strengthens us to publicly and continually declare our hope. Now you may think, okay, I want to confess him. That's, that sounds good, brother. That sounds good. But the scripture says that he has passed into the heavens. And I'm here in this fallen world. How can I be sure that he will really help? How can I be sure he is in the heavens now and he is being worshipped by the seraphim and the cherubim and the mighty angels? His gaze is fixed upon the worship of the pure spirits and the redeemed in heaven. How can I be sure that his focus would go on to me? Down here, weak and frail. And that's what leads us to our next point. That Jesus, the Son of God, our high priest, our great high priest, is a sympathetic high priest. There is sympathy for the weak. There is compassion for the weak. Now, a necessary characteristic of a high priest in the Old Testament was that he was a tender man. He was to be a sympathetic man. He was to be a figure that men and women desired to speak to. He was to be like a father figure in the nation, a father of Israel. People would desire to speak to him and, and let off their issues and let off their burdens. He was to be a welcoming man. For he was to represent God to his people. So he had to be kind and patient and long-suffering with the weaknesses and the sins of those around him. And the way God ensured that was to make the high, priest, the high priest acquainted with his own weakness. He was to be a man who was taken out of his brothers. Aaron was a fellow Jew taken out from the Jewish nation. And so he himself was a man like them, beset with weakness. And so by his own experience of his own weakness, he was able to minister to those in weakness. Well, in Hebrews 5, it puts it like this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And so because the high priest was painfully aware and acquainted with his own weakness and his own sins, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He can never proudly look upon his brothers. He was just like them. And in that way, he was able to be a fellow sufferer. When someone in need came to him, he did not simply, from an intellectual position, try to help them, but he was able to grab them by the hand and say, I know what you're going through. He was able to really minister to them. And it's true of our greater and more perfect high priest, Jesus. In Hebrews 2, it says, Therefore, Jesus, he had to be like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Hmm. But you might think, okay, but does not the Son of God, the eternal Son, know all things? 
Is he not omniscient? Is not all knowledge set before him in an instant? Is that not what it means to be God, to know everything? Yeah, but there is a, a, a world of a difference between intellectual knowledge and knowledge gained by experience from being in the actual situation. The heart can remain unmoved and untouched. But when you yourself have been in that situation, your emotions become involved. You now know by experience. A good way to illustrate this is to think of, imagine you had your young child and your young child was suffering from a serious heart issue. And there was only two doctors in the whole world who could operate on your child's heart. And if he didn't, then your child would be gone. And so you meet the first doctor and the first doctor says to you, I can do it. I've studied. I have a degree. I have a master's. I'm well qualified. And if you just bring your child to me, I've got the tools. I've got the equipment. I'll operate on him and he'll be okay. Okay, that, there's some hope there. But if you went now to the second doctor and that doctor said to you, okay, I have the qualifications. I have the tools. I have everything necessary. But let me tell you that I myself had to operate the same procedure on my own child. I myself had to operate on his heart to save my own child. Would you not rather go with that doctor because he himself knows and can sympathize with you? He himself would be extra tender as he operates on the heart, as he remembers his own child suffering. There's a difference between knowledge gained by intellect and knowledge gained by experience. And so in order for Christ to be our merciful and faithful high priest, in order for Christ to be the one who can truly help and sustain you, he must be acquainted with your own grief, with your own sorrow, with your own pain, so that he may be tender and patient and careful with you. And how wonderfully you see it. Oh, Hebrews 5, let me say this scripture and let me drink this drink quick. In Hebrews 5 from verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. See the suffering Christ. What was his name? A man acquainted with sorrows, a man acquainted with grief, a man acquainted with sorrows, one from whom men hid their face. Did anyone ever suffer as Christ did? See his family reject him and misunderstand him, his own brothers. See him in the wilderness being buffeted and attacked by the devil. See him, his own followers, forsaking him, his best friend Peter denying that he ever knew him. See him there on the cross bearing the world of sin, crying out, my father, why have you forsaken me? See the suffering scars that he bears. Who suffered like the Lord Jesus Christ? Who has suffered like this high priest? Is there anything that we can experience that he has not? Ten times, a hundred times more. No man suffered like Jesus. 
So he knows weakness. Himself being a man, him himself subjecting himself to the limitations and the weaknesses of, weaknesses of natural, a natural man. And that's what it, it said there in the text, that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. I don't think, you know, weakness is, is, is displayed in a man when, when, when he's tearing. Well, not weakness, but tenderness, you know, a fellow feeling. And can you imagine Christ there in Gethsemane, wetting the grass with his tears and blood, weeping, lifting up loud prayer, lifting up prayers and supplications. And so, dear Christian, because he has known darkness, he can help those in the dark. Because he has known grief and rejection, he can help those who have been rejected and grieved. Because he has known the effects of sin to the utmost, he may come to the aid of those who are lying under the burden of sin. Because he has known temptation, he can aid those suffering under temptation and swiftly bring mercy and grace to sustain you. He knows by fellow feeling. Our high priest, Jesus, he is a fellow sufferer with us. And you need to see that. Do you see that? That when we come to Christ for help, he is not out there somewhere. I mean, today I was speaking, well, in the night when I was working, I was speaking to a Muslim man. We were speaking for like five hours, a kind, a kind man. And, you know, he was just speaking about his God being up there far away. And I'm just thinking, but what good is that? Your God is far away. He doesn't know what I feel. He cannot really help me. Yeah, he might know it by intellect, but he cannot really minister to my own soul. He cannot really share in suffering with me. He cannot really help me at my weakest point, for it's foreign to him. But we see this so wonderfully in Jesus. We see this so wonderfully in the gospel that God, desiring so much to help you, desiring so much to strengthen you and to be your refuge, sent his own son to know what you know, to feel what you feel. Now that's encouraging. There is so much joy and comfort. He understands for he himself knows weakness so he can sympathize with your weakness. He sympathizes with you. He understands. He understands. Do you know that? Whatever situation you are in, no one understands. He understands. He understands. And he is able to help you tenderly, softly, gently. Such is our high priest. But it must be no noted from the text that though he was tempted, he was without sin. He did not sin. He was sinless. He did not succumb. His temptations came from outward pressure. The devil had to tempt him. Our temptations come from inward desire. We see something, we, 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 we want it. But Jesus never had an evil desire. He never once desired evil, for he is the holy one, harmless and undefiled. But then you may say, okay, how can he really help me then if he has not known sin? Like, in, in that way, if he has not known... But this is so wonderful for us because what does sin do? Sin hardens our heart. Sin makes us uncaring and unfeeling. Jesus never had a hardened heart. 
And so that means that he is always tender. His heart has never been affected and, and made callous by the effects of sin. And so he is, he is, as it says in Hebrews 7, harmless, spotless, undefiled, tender, sympathetic towards us. And so just grab hold of these truths and just apply them to your soul. Apply them to your heart. Apply them to your mind. He knows what you're going through. He has trod the path before you. Can you see his footsteps already there? You're not alone. He understands and knows your suffering. He bears the scars. Look at his hands and feet. Let this strengthen you and encourage you to exercise your faith and trust him. Do not be afraid to take all your cares and concerns and lay them at the feet of Jesus. They're safe hands. He is our great high priest. And so there is a confession for the weak. There is sympathy for the weak. And if you put this all together and add it all up, there's confidence for the weak. We should be confident, though we are weak. The knowledge of a sympathizing, merciful, and faithful high priest should birth confidence within us. Confidence to approach God. As it says there, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. We can have confidence to approach God. Though he be an all-consuming fire, the Holy One, we can have confidence to approach him. We can have confidence to go through the holy of through the veil into the holy of holies, where only one man could go when the tabernacle was on earth. Now the whole Christian, the whole camp of saints can enter in. You can go in. You know that. You can go into the presence of God. You can have confidence. You can draw near with confidence. Though your circumstances seem bleak and against you, you can know that God is for you. God is for us, as we so wonderfully sang it earlier. If God is for us, who can be against us? We can be confident that we will receive mercy and grace and find grace to help in a time of need. In the darkest hour, in your most desperate time, you can have confidence. Now, because of what Christ, who Christ is and what he has done, in being our merciful and faithful high priest. And so wonderful, so wonderful. Look at, the, look at the passage. It says, let us then draw near, let us then draw near to the throne of grace, to the throne of grace, the throne of grace. So, wonderfully, so wonderful were the effects of, our, of the service of Christ our high priest that what should have been for us a great white throne of judgment is now a throne of grace. What should have been for us a throne where we see pearls of thunder and lightning and inapproachable gloom and darkness, a place where sinful man cannot go, now we can approach with confidence? Really, we should be like the Israelites when they were at the mountain and they were like to Moses, you go, Moses, we're not going. We're not going too close. The sight of God's holiness. But in Christ, God is approachable. He is our fellow man. We see him and recognize him. We can approach through Christ, our high priest, 
And therefore, he has made a throne of grace. A he has access, given us access to the throne of grace. And we have a limitless supply to help us, as it says there, to find, to receive mercy. Mercy when we have sinned and to find grace to sustain us in our temptations in a time of need. So do not let your weakness keep you bound and discouraged. But come with your weakness to Christ and keep coming. There is mercy for you and there is grace. In the times of your temptation, resist. Go to Christ and trust that he will aid you and you will overcome. He is fitted and suited perfectly to bring you to glory and he will do it if you trust him if you trust him and lean upon him and so we can have confidence but having thought of the greatness and the love of our high priests And what he has done for us. Just know that he desires for you to come. He desires for you to come close. There's that scripture in, in Hebrews 7 where it says that he is able to save to the utmost, the uttermost, those who draw, to, who draw, those who draw near to God through him. The uttermost he is able to save. We can have confidence, abounding confidence, and keep coming to Christ. Don't give up. Keep pressing on. And I would just like to apply this in one way to us. The Christian life is one of imitation. We are to imitate Christ. And so we who know our weakness, like the high priests of old, are ourselves to be tender to those who are weak. God makes us to know our weakness so that we may help those in weakness that we may be tender and careful and gentle and kind to our fellow brothers and sisters. I know if we'd done that, how wonderful would the gathering of the saints be if we all imitated Christ in this love-giving way, this sacrificial love, this warm, welcoming way. I mean, this is a word for me, <laughs> really. Do people view you as someone they can come to for help? Do you know that you are a priest? You are God's priest and therefore you represent God. The people view you as someone that they can come to for help and comfort. Someone that they can counsel with. I don't say this to discourage us or to condemn us, but to encourage us to be more than what we are. For we can be in Christ. And so let us imitate Christ in this way and be a gathering of saints, a gathering of priests who minister to each other, who welcome each other, who love each other in this way. And briefly, I'll say one more thing. And this is to those who do not know Christ, who have never made use of this high priest, who have heard of his name but never believed in it. Let, let me say, 
after hearing of the, of the mercy and the grace of Christ, that he assumed flesh for you, that he would die on a cross for our sins, does that not affect your heart in any way? Can you, under the knowledge of such a wonderful saviour, remain unmoved? Does it not move you to action? Does it not move you to think, wait, let me draw near to this one? Can you hear of his goodness and does it not lead you to repentance? The writer in Hebrews in chapter 2 says, how can we neglect so great a salvation? How can we trample under God, the Son of God underfoot again by hearing his gospel and rejecting it? How can you do that? What will you say when you stand before him? He will say, look at my nail-pierced hands. Look at what I have done. I have took on flesh for you and you have rejected it. I have come into the world. I have borne the sin of humanity and you have not received it. Do not choose the fleeting pleasures of sin over the everlasting pleasures of obedience and faith in Christ Jesus. It's insanity. It's crazy. Do not choose the weeping and gnashing of teeth and the outer darkness over the eternal bliss and glory that awaits every follower of Jesus. Unbeliever, it doesn't have to end with you in that way. But let it end with you. Furthermore, let it be true of you this day that you came in lost, confused, barren, unsaved, but that you leave saved, you leave born again. And Christ will do that. And so Jesus stands in heaven and he calls, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Are you heavy laden? Do you have a heavy yoke? Come to Jesus, and know the rest that he so wonderfully gives. And may God do that for all of us, and bless this to us. In Jesus' name, amen.